Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we'll discuss the latest and greatest in Canadian politics with Dr. Lori Turnbull, the Director of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. MPPs return to Queen's Park today. We'll discuss what's on their agenda. And we cover all things in American politics. It's getting pretty hot down in Washington these days. Reggie Cicchini will have his weekly Washington report for us. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It's uh, federal politics front and center. Uh, The Liberals populated the city of Ottawa for their annual convention over this past weekend. Uh, Keynote speech by the Prime Minister and a former Prime Minister and lots of other folks. And uh, the Prime Minister, well, left no doubt at the Liberal Policy Convention in Ottawa that uh, he's already preparing for the next election, that he intends to run. He is going to be the guy. Mia Robson has details. Trudeau spent a large chunk of his 32-minute speech tearing down Conservative leader Pierre Polyev in front of 3,500 roaring Liberals. He says Polyev's populism and buzzwords are not serious solutions to the problems facing Canada and Canadians today. Hey, Pierre Polyev, it's time for you to wake up. Trudeau and his government have come off a rough winter as Polyev and the Conservatives hammer at them over mismanaging foreign interference and inflation. Trudeau made clear he intends to lead the party into the next election whenever it happens, and his party made clear on the convention floor that there is nobody else they'd rather have do that. Mia Rabson, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. And we'll begin there with our coverage of uh, not just that, but of course a couple of other things going on in Ottawa. Uh, and to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Dr. Turnbull is the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, great to have you with us again. I uh, hope you had a good weekend. I did, Bill. I had a great weekend, and thanks for having me. Good to have you here. Uh, this, I, these policy conventions can be pretty dry uh, a lot of the time because there's, there's no drama of a leadership vote or anything like that, although some of them will do that to reaffirm it. Uh, the, I think the focus on this one clearly was about the prime minister and, and what his political future is. I know he said he was going to be there uh, for the next election, but there have been some rumblings that, that maybe something else was going on because of the popularity polls. But uh, he pretty much made the, the, like the case, I guess, and probably I think beyond making the case, uh, pretty much set the tone for this election. It's, it's going to be, this is not about politics. This is uh, Paulia versus Trudeau coming up, isn't it? Yeah, I agree with you. I, and you're right. Like he absolutely took the his speech at this convention as a time to say, you know, <clears throat> look, for anybody who thinks that I don't have it in the tank, that I'm not going to be the guy for the next election, like you are wrong. I am here. Uh, the party wants me here. We're excited. We're, you're, you know, we're, you're mobilized. We're united. We're energetic. It, it, so I think he did what he had to do, to be honest. Like he kind of needed to go in and blow the doors off the place just to get everybody excited and make it, you know, understood that he is not at all thinking about walking away. And so the party's not in any kind of a leadership crisis. But beyond that, you're right. I mean, these, these sorts of conventions, like they have really exciting moments and then they have very, um, you know, business-like moments, which are not as exciting at all. And so you see some interesting uh, resolutions come up and they're voted on and things like that. It doesn't bind the leadership, but the party members talk about what they want the party to stand for and different things they might want to try. But yeah, I mean, I think the overall tone of the the weekend is this is the Prime Minister's party. Uh, Notwithstanding, as we've said, some of the rumors that were going around, and I I don't know if they were substantiated or not, but it's, it's pretty clear after this weekend, especially though, Laurie, that uh, if I can use a, a baseball analogy, I mean, he's he's still the pitcher. There's nobody warming up in the bullpen, is there? No, and I think um, we we never really had a sense that there was. 
Like, I think most of the speculation about whether or not Trudeau was going to stick around was essentially based on time. It was about, you know, he's been here for 10 years. He's been prime minister for eight years. He's had three terms. Um, that is usually the time where somebody packs up. And there might be some people who think, hey, look, you know, you're kind of on borrowed time. You might want to get out before you are pushed out. But clearly, you know, there's no sense in the Liberal Party that that's a thing. And it's, I think it would be almost impossible at this point for anybody to put their hand up and say they're thinking about running. And as we talked about last week, even somebody like Mark Carney is saying, you know, I'm behind the prime minister, I'm behind the party. And so sort of a, an interesting moment of renewal, I think, for the party, because usually, yeah, like at the 10-year mark, you know, eight, nine, 10 years, people, voter fatigue is a real thing. People start looking around. And so part of what he has to do, I think, is show a fresh face, even though this is that, you know, his, his leadership is 10 year old and his 10 years old and his government is eight years old. I want to talk about the, the, the character of what may be happening in the election, whenever that's going to be. Uh, it seemed pretty clear from the comments that the prime minister made in his address uh, to the, to the convention uh, that, that he's there to take on Polyev. I mean, as I described in my commentary on CHML earlier this morning, he, he's characterizing Polyev as the enemy at the gate. Uh, he's going to steal your social saf safety net. He's going to, you know, cut the Volkswagen deal out. He's going to kill these sorts of things. Uh, and, and we're going to be worse off than we ever were before. Uh, yet, yet he is the, the guardian of the social service net. He's the guy that brought you the dental care program and, and, and a number of other things that have gone on here right now. But is it, is, is his decisions based solely on policy, or is it the fact that he doesn't like Pierre Polyev and he wants to take this guy down? And because if it, if it is, or if there's even a smidge of that, uh, is that really a, a strong foundation for an election campaign? Well, this is it. I mean, I actually think that there are pretty critical policy questions in front of us. It is. I mean, this is like the real heart of you know very fundamental political questions about how we want to divide and use our resources and how we you know, how we manage crises and things like that. And so these are really important questions, right? Like, how do we want to manage the economy? Where you sit on the Volkswagen deal is going to say something about, you know, what you think the role of government is and what whether or not you think this is a worthwhile investment and, you know, how you see the climate change issue and, and how we want to tackle that. There are major policy differences between the two parties and between the two people in terms of how they want to run the country. And so I think there's, there's no lack, um, you know, despite the the very heavy personalized narrative around the, you know, the, the battle between Trudeau and Polyev. There are no, there's no shortage of serious policy issues for us to talk about. And the, you know, how, how they're managing healthcare and how we're going to, you know, other, other aspects of the social safety net. What are we going to do on defense? Those are key things. But there's also this very heavy narrative of this sort of, as you say, like enemies. And that's a sign of our politics too. It's you are not against somebody, you know, that you're having a conversation with just about policy and you, diff, you know, you have different opinions. This is, you know, that, that other person is my enemy, not my opponent. And so I'm personally extremely uncomfortable with that. And I think that's a, a bad evolution and development. It's not evolution. It's, it's some sort of um, regression in our politics where we, you don't see the civil, the civility, the respect between two opponents. It's, that person is going to try try to destroy the country, and so I'm going to try to destroy them in a campaign. And it's just very difficult to, um, you know, because then you end up in a circumstance where whoever wins, it's a winner-take-all. And the, lo the, the losers, like people who voted for the other person, feel like, oh, well, I guess this government isn't for me then. 
and that's, I mean, how do we keep civility amongst ourselves if this is the tone in politics? Or someone suggests, how do you reestablish civility? Because yeah. I'm not so sure it's in there in, in heaping helpings as, as it is. But there were rumors back in 2005 and, and into 2006, though, Laurie, uh, that Stephen Harper might have done the same thing, that he had you know, accomplished what he wanted to and probably would have stepped aside, except for the fact that Justin Trudeau became the leader of the Liberal Party. Uh, and the, there was no love lost between those two. And some are suggesting that Harper stuck around just to, to beat Trudeau again. Of course, that didn't happen. Uh, but it's 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 not a strong foundation, as you say, for a policy thing. You can't make it personal, can you? When when you're trying to run against somebody, it may well be personal, but that, I don't know that that voters feel comfortable with that. Right, and you know, a lot of people are going to be looking at this and thinking, you know, they they don't want to get sucked up into the Trudeau versus Polyev. Like they're they're not interested. They're interested in what is best for, for me and my family? Like, how are we going to tackle the inflation issue? How are we going to manage cost of living? How are we going to manage the climate change issue in a way that, you know, is is still providing assurance that, um, you know, industries that are affected are going to be transitioned in a way that's responsible and people aren't going to be totally screwed as a result? Like, you know, people are looking for the issues. Then these two people are, as we've talked about before, extremely polarizing. And, it's it's not when you get to this point where it's like the two enemies, it's going to be really hard for either of them to build support to grow their tent because they're doing so. The way they're engaging with one another is a way is a way of like if you're you're either for me or you're against me, and so if Trudeau is basically isolating Polyev and the other way around too, and you know you're a bad guy and you want bad things for the country. Well, how does anybody from that camp then cross over to the other camp? It's just completely divided, like they're they're totally watertight compartments. And then it becomes more difficult for, you know, the leaders to try to build national visions that are inclusive because a lot of this is built on bringing the other person down. So it's limited, you know, in the extent to the extent to which this can kind of create bridges between people and build broader coalitions around any parties like it's just not designed for that. Uh, I want to get into the foreign interference thing in a second, too, the Michael Chong aspect of it. But the story yeah. that just broke this morning, I, I'm sure you've seen uh, in the Globe and Mail from uh, from Bob Fife and uh, Stephen Chase, uh, that Canada apparently is now seeking to join the, that AUKUS alliance, that non-nuclear pillar of the AUKUS alliance. That's the one that uh, they a lot of people thought should have joined back in September when this was formed between the United States and, and some of the other Five I nations. Uh, they weren't interested in the nuclear submarines, but apparently there's a phase two. Uh, is is this an attempt, as you were just talking about a couple of seconds ago, to to show that yes, we do care about about what's going on internationally, and yes, we do worry about our defense uh, commitments? Oh, I think so. And and for Trudeau too, like he's really come under fire for his comments around how we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't ever meet our NATO target. Like that's a problem. And even if, um, you know, even if people don't have defense as necessarily their number one issue. And a lot of, I mean, some people do, but I, but, you know, usually when we see public opinion polls around what's your most important issue, defense doesn't tend to rank top of the list. Uh, but at the same time, people don't want to think that Canada's not doing its share and that we've got some assumption that we don't really have to, and that we're going to keep kind of ragging the puck on this. And no matter what happens globally, we're never going to step up to the plate and meet that 2% target. I mean, that's not, that's a problem, right? Like that's a problem in terms of Canada being taken seriously in the kinds of, of spaces in the globe that we want to be present at. 
how do how you know G seven G twenty for example like we can't we can't just decide look we're not going to do that everybody else can do it but we're not like so I think he's probably trying to save some face from that because that was a that was a, a pretty bad day for the government I think. Uh, very quickly, Michael Chong had some airtime on the Sunday political shows as well to, to state his case and reiterate his concern. Uh, and I think a lot of people's concerns about the foreign interference. Uh, is it is a story with legs? Is this thing going to continue to go on as as uh, the weeks progress? I mean, there have been a number of attempts here to try to shift the focus to something else. But I, I get the sense, Laurie, that it's it's something that's going to hang around for a while and there's, there's going to have to be some accountability. Absolutely, because this is a very different dimension of the foreign interference thing. Like, it was bad enough when the story was, you know, is there an improper transfer of money? Is there an attempt to influence the Trudeau government through the Trudeau Foundation? Is there, you know, um, is there interference in terms of the Chinese government's preference for who is the government, who is the candidate? Like, those sorts of things are, are um, you know, is there a te- an attempt to, to motivate people through misinformation and disinformation? Those things are problematic enough, and they strike at the heart of our democracy. But when you're talking about is there an attempt to intimidate or, you know, or focus on um, an MP's family? That is, like, that is a completely different dimension. This is a different order of magnitude. This is a, you know, he is a human being. His family could be targeted. What the heck? And so that is going to transcend party line. And that is going to be, you know, of extreme concern. And Michael Chong is such a person of integrity, and he is the type of person that, even though he sits with a political party, he is broadly respected on Parliament Hill. And mm-hmm. so he is the type of person, you know, he, he gets up and speaks, people listen to him. And so I think this is going to be, um, yeah, this is going to have to be, there's going to be have, to have to be accountability, as you say. Well, it's going to be a hot week in Ottawa. And as always, we look for your perspective on this. Uh, Laurie, thank you so much for the time today. Have a good week. We'll talk again soon. Sounds good, Bill. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Queen's Park back to work today uh, with a number of hot items on the agenda for the next couple of weeks. Uh, joining us to talk about that and uh, and maybe a quick look back at uh, what happened in Ottawa this past weekend, too. Uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Sabrina Nanji, the publisher of Queen's Park Review. Uh, Sabrina, thanks so much for the time today. Glad you could join us. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Were you uh, wandering around the, the Liberal Convention as well, looking to see who's talking to whom and, and what's going on there? Uh, I did have eyes on the ground. Um, there you and go. You, you know me, I, I got my Queen's Park hat on as usual. And uh, so the, the stuff I was really paying attention to and that stood out to me was how much, um, you know, the Ontario Liberal leadership candidates were kind of piggybacking on, on this big Liberal oven in the Capitol. Uh there was, you know, hospitality suites, which are essentially just a big schmooze fest uh, put on by Nader Skin-Smith, that the federal MP who is, uh, you know, poised to throw his hat in the ring for a liberal leader. His party was so big, uh, it got shut down because it broke the fire code. It was on the 23rd floor. They had to move it down to the basement. Yasser <laughs> um, Nakvi held a couple of hospitality suites, too. He was, you know, going around getting signatures for his nomination. Um, you know, Adil Sham and Ted Shu were also there. Adele had put on, uh, you know, this pub night at a bar nearby. And and don't forget about Bonnie Crombie. You know, she yeah. was kind of the 
the star here, you know, Mississauga mayor who is flirting with her own bid. I've heard that, you know, that that could come anytime soon that she could make it official. And and she's very much leaning, you know, towards throwing her hat in the race. Uh, she was, you know, kind of a bit of a star at the show. One person put it to me and said she got mobbed as by her fans. She, um, you know, ha- it looked like she was having fun. She danced a little bit. Uh, and, you know, she was holding court with, with pretty much anyone who would listen. So definitely a lot of gossip. Uh, for federal liberals, uh, especially when, you know, Justin Trudeau's uh, future at the helm of the party is being called into question, I don't think he's going anywhere. But for me, it was really about, you know, what the provincial liberals were, were doing and, and sort of, uh, you know, uh, crashing this convention. Well, it's kind of interesting because a number of conventions I've covered over the years, uh, yeah, there's the speeches and, and the votes if there's going to be leadership or something. Not all of them do, of course. But you can also see uh, and trends developing on just in the hallways and the floor, who's talking to whom, uh, who's following whom around. I, you know, the, I remember the, the Liberal Leadership Convention back in 2006, I guess it was, in Montreal, and I was there. And... Uh, you know, that was Stefan Dion that eventually won that. And, and you know, Ignatieff and Bob Ray and a bunch of other people were in there. But the, the the story of that convention was Justin Trudeau. He wasn't running for anything, but everywhere he went, there was this gaggle of about 40 or 50 people. You know, they just followed him around, hanging off his every word and who he's shaking hands with and pictures being taken. So you kind of got the sense that, okay, this is somebody that, that you know, these guys have really got, uh, the, you know, some something about him and, and there's a future to it. I uh, saw the same thing at the... Uh, the conservative convention uh, when uh, Mike Harris stepped down, uh, that it was pretty obvious that, that you know they were looking towards an Ernie Eves, not a Tony Clement, and something like that. So, uh, if, even though this was the quote unquote liberal convention, uh, let's face it: if you're going to run for the provincial leadership, you know, this is a great opportunity to glad hand, isn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. That was the place to be. And, uh, you know, to your point, I I think it's not so what's happening officially at these types of events. It's what's going on sort of behind the scenes. Um, And I think Bonnie Crombie was certainly um, maybe, you know, filled the role that that Trudeau had um, back in the day because there was a ton of buzz about her. But, you know, the the Ontario Liberal leadership race is starting to take shape now. Um, You know, you can go pick up your registration papers. People can actually uh, submit their their resign uh, their uh, their sign up sheets and, and that sort of thing. So we've got the dates. Uh, the deadline is in September to sign up. Uh, we're going to find out who the leader is on December second. And so the the pressure is really on for someone like Bonnie Crombie right now because uh, although she would be a front runner and you know a dark horse who could really you know shake up this race. There are other people who have been in it that have been doing the legwork, um, you know, raising funds. It's not cheap. The, the price of entry is $100,000. It's, you know, uh, com- compare that to, you know, the city of Toronto, where we have 65 people running for, for mayor here. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the pressure is really on for someone like Bonnie because she's sort of in this early stages of organizing. And, you know, of course, nothing is set in stone as to whether she'll actually uh, throw her hat in the ring here. But people like Nate Erskine-Smith, people like Yasser Nakvi have had months to, you know, tour the province, to raise cash, to put their name out there and build up their profile, because this is going to be card-carrying liberals who are going to pick their leader. And then, of course, they'll be taking it wider, you know, to, to the province to uh, possibly go for, for the premier's job. And so someone like Bonnie, you know, the, the, the time is really ticking and the pressure is on for her because, well, I don't think she'll have too much trouble when it comes to the fundraising front. She's got a lot of fans 
fans, as you said. Uh, you know, certainly that was seen over the weekend too. Uh, there, it still takes time to do this, and of course, uh, the later she decides to make it official that the tougher it will be of a campaign but i don't think she's sweating anything yet she can certainly take her time um i have heard that folks over at mississauga city hall are a bit worried about uh you know potentially losing their mayor um when it's a busy time for for city hall city halls as well um we know you know what with the Ford government and bill 23 launching these audits to kind of um help make up the gap that uh, scrapping developer fees would do so you know for for a city like mississauga it's it's crunch time and it's also crunch time for for bonnie to you know either um put up or, or shut up if i can put it that way well it's good to, yeah I, I think people know which way she's leading in that so that's going to be fabulous meanwhile back at queen's park uh, the legislature is officially back to work today with the, the usual stuff going on at that location uh, well, the week off is usually, you know, a chance to, as you told us the other day, just to hit the pause button and, okay, take a deep breath and do some constituency work. But they're back at each other today. And, of course, uh, opposition leader and NDP leader, Marge Stiles, uh, she's got a couple of things to choose from here. The, the, the privatization of health care is something that is really starting to resonate now, and the, and the opposition to that is picking up steam. And then, of course, is the, the Ontario Place deal that, uh, that I'm sure she's going to bring up, too. Yeah, um, you know, Marit Stiles kind of scooped herself a little bit. Uh, it's going to be a fiery question period. They haven't really had a chance to hammer the premier for the past week, but there is no shortage of fodder for them to really dig into here. And it's going to be exactly what you mentioned. Um, you know, Bill 60, which expands private delivery of certain you know, OHIP-funded services. Uh, you know, the government says that's all about helping to ease the backlog that's been exacerbated by the pandemic when it comes to surgeries. And we all know our hospital system is, is you know, stretched to the brink at this point. And so the PCC see this as, as one way to tackle that. Of course, you know, the NDP was up front and center today uh, saying that th this is the end of Medicare as we know it. Um, and, and this will just lead to worse patient outcomes. So this bill is poised to become law. There's a vote after question period for third reading. Of course, it still needs to get uh, royal assent and, uh, you know, the fine print, uh, get enacted, those dates, that type of thing. But, you know, barring some uh, disaster at Queen's Park, this, this will be enshrined in law later today. Uh, the PCs have a whopping majority, so there's really not much the NDP can do. And the same goes for Ontario Place. Um, you know, uh, Marit Stiles sort of teased this motion that she's going to be putting forward next week. It's a special opposition day motion um, calling on the Ford government to, you know, cancel this, this almost century-long lease with Therma, this uh, spa and water park company um, moving into Ontario Place. And, you know, motions um, are, are non-binding. So even if they pass, which, of course, I, I highly doubt the Conservatives are, are going to pass this opposition motion uh, that basically goes against their plans, but you know, they're not even binding. So there's really not a lot of levers the opposition can really do here. Um, and, and the onus is kind of on the Ford government. And we have seen the Premier budge uh, when there's been a lot of pressure from the public. And so I think that's going to be what actually gets him to move. I'm not saying he's going to change his mind about what's going on at Ontario Place, but I am hoping that we'll get some more transparency over this decision making. You know, um, the PCs have kind of hinted that they would release the business case, walked that back. Um, there's really not a lot of transparency here. And I think that, you know, this would have been a bit smoother for the Ford government if they had um, 
you know, been more open and transparent from the get-go about these plans because I do think something needs to be done with Ontario Place. I'm not sure if, if this is the, the best idea, but, you know, the for government really could do itself a favor and, and show its work here. I got to put a minute left, but I got to jump in. This is probably not going to be a major issue, but I saw this story this morning. I know, I know that you guys are going to cover it. Uh, Ontario government apparently wants to expand licensing regime to allow residents to unleash dogs in an enclosed area to teach them how to hunt and captive coyotes, foxes, and rabbits. Uh, animal rights experts are just livid about this when the story broke today. What are these guys thinking? Yeah, this one was um, a, a bit of a surprise to me, too, because it's the, the conservative government that is sort of reviving this program when, you know, a former conservative premier, Mike Harris, had kind of started to wind it down back in the day. And uh, you know, the line from our, our natural resources minister, Graydon Smith, is that, uh, you know, this is a controlled space and it's it's a dog sport. They're kind of spinning it that way. But for, you know, animal animal advocates, they're saying it's it's just cruel uh, for, for captive prey. Um, you know, this isn't necessarily what's going to solve the coyote problem. This is kind of separate from that. Um, and I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, like I said, the Ford government has its majority. So what it wants to do will go forward. But I think the one saving grace here with this very controversial proposal is that it, it's sort of happening in an enclosed space and in a controlled environment um, rather than kind of just letting dogs, you know, run, run loose um, and, and go after coyotes and, and foxes and rabbits and the like. But um, yeah, certainly this one is getting a, a lot of heat as well. It's part of this omnibus red tape package. So uh, you kind of got to like look through the fine print um, sometimes with this government, especially when it comes to omnibus bills, because they can kind of slip in controversial proposals. But um, of course, you know, we we caught this one and we'll see how it all rolls out. Yeah. Well, as you, I, I know you eyes, that's what you guys do. You go through the fine print so you can tell us what's happening and not happening. So uh, I think this is going to be a much bigger story than they think it is too. If they're just going to slide it into one of those bills, but we'll be watching for your reporting on it over the next few days. Sabrina, as always, thanks so much for this today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. Sabrina Nancy, publisher of the Queen's Park Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. More tragedy south of the border. Uh, this past weekend, federal officials are looking into whether the gunman who killed eight people at a Dallas area mall expressed any interest in a white supremacist ideology as they work to discern motive for this whole thing. Reporter Jim Ryan has the latest. We now know this person was Mauricio Garcia, a 33-year-old who lives somewhere in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, was in the Army. He was removed in 2008 because of mental health concerns. He had a tactical vest on. He was armed with a rifle and some kind of a handgun. FBI agents who have examined the weapons found insignia indicating a right-wing extremist ideology, looking not just at the crime itself, but also at the social media footprint of Garcia, trying to learn something about the motivation for the killing. And therein lies the problem. And I know this sadly sounds like white noise to so many people because these seem to happen on such a regular basis. Uh, and we saw some frustration from the president uh, because of that. To uh, talk about this and uh, some interesting political twists that are going on there too, uh, please to welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini, who is the Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Reggie, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning. I, I, the clip that sticks out of my mind is they were asking President Biden about this, and he, he looked so exasperated, Reggie, just kind of almost threw up his hands and said, look, I can't do anything about this. The Congress just is not cooperating. We can't get legislation passed. It, it, it's, I think, 
probably the same sentiment that an awful lot of Americans are feeling right now. Yeah, uh, I mean, look, this is a president who, uh, in in the two and a bit years that he's been in office, on top of the uh, eight years that he sat as vice president, has had to watch these incidents happen time and time again with very little being done. And look, this is a president who, last year after the Uvalde shooting, signed sweeping executive actions uh, to kind of do what he could for more common sense gun control and gun legislation. But the president has come out time and time again to say uh, that he has exhausted the power of the executive pen. There is little left that he can do from within the Oval Office on his own. And both he and the White House itself via the podium with uh, with the press secretary have endlessly called on Congress to do something, to do more, um, to to make it more difficult for someone to get a gun and to end the need to have assault weapons, um, you know, in the hands of the public. And the president is coming up short. A Republican-led House is not going to do much. And the problem is, is that it is a reality here, Bill, that what we saw take place over the weekend in Allen, Texas, is going to happen again and again and again. And, and Biden's tried every angle, hasn't he, really, Reggie? I mean, you mentioned the Uvalde situation last year. Uh, Matthew McConaughey, who was an Uvalde resident, of course, he was raised there. Uh, the plea that he made a couple of days later at the White House, almost tearful plea, you figure, okay, if you're not going to listen to the politicians, maybe you listen to this guy. You know him, you love him, he's he's an icon, he's a, he's a local. Maybe that will resonate. And it just it, It's not moving the needle, is it? It's not. And, and what's interesting about this is that no one is quite sure what the reason that at least members of the Republican Party in Congress are not doing something to address this problem. Because, um, you know, as fascinating as it is to, to read this, it's also a bit shocking um, and, and almost upsetting that just last month, it was at the end of April, Fox News put a poll out um, and it said, according to the Fox survey, 87% of respondents wanted some kind of strengthened law when it came to uh, guns in this nation, whether that was, you know, waiting periods, whether it was stronger background checks, whether it was potential red flag laws. This was from a Republican network who put a survey out and even the respondents to this Republican survey said that they wanted to see more done. But again, money speaks in this country and the lobbies have a lot of influence, namely the NRA. And even though the NRA itself has has kind of, um, you know, found itself in a bit of disarray and shambles. Um, the gun culture in this country is strong, and it is hard to break the will around lawmakers who attach themselves to the Second Amendment. So regardless of whether you have the president of the United States or a Texas uh, celebrity or a Fox News poll calling for something to be done, uh, it's, it's almost impossible to figure out what is eventually going to crack to allow for something to be done. Well, because as what was it was about four or five years ago, I guess one of their own. I mean, a Republican congressman. Remember, they were playing a pickup softball game or something in in Washington, and this guy just walked up to the ball diamond and shot some people. Uh, it still doesn't work for them. I mean, that guy's back to work, and he still and he voted against any any you know any tightening of the gun control laws too. It, it really is a head shaker, isn't it? It, it, it is. It was it was uh, Congressman Steve Spillies, one of the highest That's ranking right, yeah. members within the Republican Congress uh, in the House. Uh, and he has repeatedly uh, stepped aside from or backed away from or pushed back on any kind of law that is going to make it more difficult for um, people to access a gun. And I mean, if we have zero in and focus on this just in the state of Texas itself, 
this incident that took place on Saturday killing eight people is uh, was the second mass shooting to take place in Texas in just a week. It is the ninth mass shooting where more than five people have been killed since 2016. Of those nine, three of them killed more than 20 people. That included uh, Rob Elementary uh, in Uvalde. And Texas Governor Greg Abbott was on Fox News uh, over the weekend on the Sunday show saying that his state has taken these um, triumphant steps forward to make sure that it is more difficult for people to get access to a gun. But it kind of goes against the reality where his own administration has worked to make it easier to walk around in the state of Texas with a gun and not even need to have a permit with that gun. So you have politicians who are going to use this to their advantage to say here are the things that they are doing even though it doesn't really work against what the actual situation is and i mean you heard in the report just before we started uh that this that this suspected gunman was released from the military due to mental health concerns texas doesn't have a red flag law to allow for the temporary removal of a firearm from somebody who is at risk to themselves or others so again the question is what are notably Republican lawmakers and legislators actually doing to stop this problem from continuing. Well, and you mentioned it, Abbott and, and, and others, are, they're, they're talking the talk, but you know, the, it's, it's, it's a false bravado, of course, that they're putting through. Let, let's, if we could swing over to politics for just a second. A fascinating op-ed piece uh, about uh, California, or, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, and, and as we've talked about, uh, about a year ago when he started to kick the tires about a run for president, uh, everybody thought this is the guy. You know, Donald Trump's in legal trouble. Uh, I think even some Republicans were thinking maybe we made a mistake there. He's just too radical. Uh, DeSantis seemed like the perfect fill-in. I mean, he's 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 right-wing. He's got a lot of the same policies, but he's, he's cleaner. He's maybe more acceptable. This guy's had a huge fall from grace in the last seven or eight months, hasn't he? Absolutely, he has. Um, his poll numbers are cratering. At one point, just a couple of months ago, um, his numbers were were in the double digits above Donald Trump. And this is while Ron DeSantis is not a declared candidate for uh, the Republican nomination here. And here we are today, a couple of months later, and Donald Trump is again soaring past uh, Ron DeSantis for any number of reasons, but namely here, the fact that Donald Trump has kind of removed himself from the branding of Republican. He's trying to bring this kind of, um, you know, outsider grassroots movement again that he soared into power with in 2016, trying to use that to his advantage. And in order to get over what Trump is doing, Ron DeSantis has really found himself moving much further and further um, to the right, whether it's on issues having to do with abortion or, or having to do with uh, the war in Ukraine or even having to do with Trump himself, Ron DeSantis has alienated um, a segment of the Republican Party and a growing segment of the independents within um, the kind of voting electorate. And it has isolated him. And he's now planning to to enter this race sometime in the next couple of weeks. He is going to have a hill to try and climb up on to reestablish himself as the name for Republicans to go to, even though he has kind of worked to make himself a bit of a pariah within the Republican Party. Well, when you look at some of those issues, and you, you've touched on, I think, some of the real key ones here, Reggie, uh, one of them, of course, being the abortion thing, which is, you know, I, I still think going to be a major issue in the upcoming election, uh, and the Republican stand versus DeSantis' stand and others on this. Uh, are widely different. And you talked about the middle of the road voters, the undecided voters in situations like that. When they look at a DeSantis position on uh, on abortion or even trans rights, which he seems to have made all of a sudden an issue, especially in Florida, uh, is is that where 
small C conservatives are these days? I mean, is 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 that actually going to attract some of those middle of the road voters? It, it, it may work against him. Look, it worked against Republicans last year uh, when they tried to go too far uh, in the midterms, when it, they tried to go too far when it came to federal response to uh, to the Supreme Court overturning Roe and when it came to individual states trying to take the decision away from an individual person. There are conservatives and there are members of the Republican Party, even though this is an issue that is close to the Republican heart, where they said, look, we are getting too involved in the the way and the day-to-day life of Americans. That was on abortion. If you go much further out for where Ron DeSantis is, getting involved in a fight with a with a giant like Disney, uh, where you now have a Republican government ultimately trying to control and tell a business what to do, that kind of really goes against what the the mainstream line of old conservatism is, is where the government stays out of the way of businesses. Yet you have Ron DeSantis entering that fight and digging his heels in, and it's resulted in the coalition that was once built up around him to start to fizzle away. It has resulted in Ron DeSantis becoming um, the kind of, you know, point and laugh figure within the Republican Party. And what does that do? It allows for Donald Trump to kind of suck up some of the oxygen. Where does that leave the independence? We have to wait and see, you know, what Ron DeSantis decides to do and how this kind of fight within the Republican Party plays out. But from recent history, two years ago, four years ago, uh, the independents ran away from the Republican Party. Even the small C's who have kind of leaned independent ran away from the Republican Party. So are Trump and are DeSantis doing, you know, a bit of sabotage to their own party? That could be a reality here. Is DeSantis falling into the same category as uh, like a Ted Cruz, Reggie, where, you know, you know, ultra-right when conservatives embrace him, well, not embrace him, but I mean, they're glad he's there because he's an advocate for their policies, but he's just a little too weird for them to actually say, okay, we're going to move this guy up and, he, and we want him in, in the Oval Office. Uh, DeSantis yeah. seems to be, you know, he, he, it looks like he's challenging that crown right now. Yeah, he, he, he is a little bit. He's kind of caught up in these weird Venn diagrams that, you know, cipher in a couple of a couple of groups, but it's not, you know, the broad group. And Republicans will say, well, look, this person speaks to X part of the base. But if you can't expand beyond that base, you may find yourself in a situation like Donald Trump found himself in in 2020, where you simply go after the people who are going to be with you no matter what. And you don't offer much rope to toss out to people who you can pull in to say, here are other things that we can do. DeSantis could be putting himself in a situation of entering the race and not able to get very high. That is also going to be very dependent on how the broader public views Joe Biden. If if, if this ends up being a Joe Biden-Ron DeSantis fight, things could be different because Biden himself is looking at cratering um, approval numbers. The vast majority of Democrats and Dem- uh, independent-leaning Democrats don't want Joe Biden in this race. So again, that's why we say looking from this far out, it could be a problem for Republicans. But if Joe Biden isn't able to kind of fix up his image or at least his kind of political numbers, this could be a problem for Democrats down the road as well. I know we're almost out of time, but I do want to touch on an issue that I know you've been doing a lot of work on, Reggie, and that's uh, the immigration issue, which is always going to be a a, a hot-button issue in the States, especially the Mexican border. Uh, The the concern right now is the lifting of Title 42 and the implications of that. Uh, The courts have maintained that they have to, because of COVID, of course, they had to keep that in place, even though they wanted to change the legislation itself. where are we on that right now? And is, is this going to be a burden that, uh, I was going to say Biden, but certainly the Biden administration, but anybody who's running for office right now is going to have to take a stand on this, aren't they? 
Sure, absolutely. And look, when Title 42 lifts on Thursday, it was a Trump-era policy to keep people from coming in and seeking asylum. Uh, when that lifts, thousands upon thousands, maybe 10, maybe 30,000 people per day for weeks on end could flood into the United States. This could become problematic not just for uh, for the states themselves that border Mexico and for the cities that are going to run out of resources. This could become a problem as well politically for the Biden administration, especially for the Department of Homeland Security, whose Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas has already faced calls for impeachment over his handling of the migrant crisis at the border. So Title 42's lifting is going to be problematic across the board. Some Republicans, especially in the House, they're going to try to vote to codify some policies that Donald Trump put in place in order to make it much more difficult for um, for kind of an immigration overload to impact this country. But uh, this is going to be a problem for all starting on Thursday uh, because of what the courts said, because of how the administration has kind of slowly walked up to this moment. And it is now going to be a moment to see what happens on Friday morning and in the days beyond to how much of a crisis this will be, not just for these communities, but for these immigrants themselves who may find themselves in a position of not having the resources they need once they've actually crossed the border. Well, I know you've been following this story, and there's more to come on that as you, in the next two or three days especially, and uh, we haven't even had a chance to talk about Justice Thomas and, and some of the controversy swirling around him. There's some new stuff there, but we'll have to do that another time. Uh, always great to get you on, Reggie. Thanks so much for this. Have a great week, and uh, we'll be watching for your uh, reporting on Global National. Thank you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.